Well, good morning, everyone. Glad you all are here, most of you. And uh, just kidding. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to continue our series in 1 Peter. Um, if you were with us last week, we looked at the first uh, 12 verses or so. We're going to look at verses 13 uh, down to chapter 2, verse 3 this morning. So if you have a Bible, there should be uh, the verses up on the screen. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you if you'd like to look at one. Uh, 1014 in your chair Bible there. I'm going to read that text and then I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll jump in uh, together. So 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things to silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He has foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And the word is the good news that was preached to you. Chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up in salvation, if indeed you have tasted the word. Is in. This is the word of God for us this morning. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we, uh, we come to you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. Um, we know that the word of God is not always clear to us. Um, it can be fuzzy at times and hard to understand, and that's why we need your help, oh God. Um, we know that you haven't revealed everything to us that we see through a glass dimly. But Lord, what we can see and what we can know, I pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts and minds to see and receive and respond in obedience and worship and thanksgiving to you, O oh God, for what you've done for us. So help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do you tell a people that have been pushed to the margins? What do you tell a people that have uh, not been the center of things, the center of culture? Maybe they're not invited to the party. They're not the cool kids that get to hang out with the popular kids. And, and First Peter is is a book about that. It's, it's about a people in the first century that have kind of been pushed to the side. They've been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And the way in which Peter is going to encourage them, the way in which he's going to kind of start this letter, as we saw last week, was he's going to remind them of the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. This hope that is undefiled, it's untouchable, it's eternal, that, that doesn't matter what your circumstances say, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life, but, but for the believer in Christ, we have this hope that is eternal, it's untouchable, that God has guarded for us in heaven. Now, think of how radical that idea is. If you are suffering, you're pushed to a side, things aren't going well, that you can have a hope that's not based on circumstance. 
it's not based on how much money you have in your account or how successful you are or how educated you are but you have this deep abiding hope in something and because someone did something ultimately jesus christ resurrection from the dead that gives us hope each and every day a living hope because we serve a living god and so the way Peter begins, and, and as we've talked about this series as being exiles for the city, is to remind us first where it all begins is your hope is found ultimately in Christ. Not whether things are going well or things are going great, or, or that's the same thing, well or terrible, whether the stock market is killing it or it's fallen off, or, but we have this, this deep hope. Now, as Peter kind of moves through this letter, what he's going to shift now to us is he's going to keep that same idea of hope rooted as we'll see in our text but he's going to say well what does it look like now to be a obedient people because of this hope what does it mean to to live a life worthy of this gospel that you've received this gospel in which you've you've inherited what does it look like to to live out your your identity as exiles in the world how does this work what, what does it look like when people don't receive you they don't they don't like you they don't they don't um, agree with what you believe what does that that even look like and that's what we're going to look at for a few moments here this morning is, is what is obedient lives as exiles in our city or wherever God has placed you? How does that look shaped by this gospel that we preach and we teach and we've found our lives rooted in and caught up in? So let's talk about that. So first we want to uh, look at preparing for what I'm going to call gospel fueled obedience. I'm going to talk about marks of gospel fueled obedience. What does that look like? And then I'm going to talk about where does gospel fueled obedience begin and 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 hopefully that will make some sense by the time we get to the end there. So preparing for gospel-fueled obedience. Notice the, the way the kind of transition happens from Peter's kind of praising God. He's thanking God in verse 3. Blessed be the God of Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When you're caught up in this reality that you have a living hope, well, what's a, a proper response? You're going to praise God. You're going to thank God. I can't believe that I'm part of this family. I can't believe what God has done. But when we get to verse 13, we see this word, therefore, in light of that, in light of this hope that you have, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, so all that the therefore, what is it there for? You always want to be looking back into scripture and saying, well, why is it there? Where's the transition happen? This is um, him pointing back to remember this hope that you have. And so in light of this hope, now live in a particular way, live as exiles in the city, pursue gospel fueled obedience. Now we talk a lot about this at this church is the indicative before the imperative. And so in the scriptures, you're always going to see the indicative before the imperative. And it's what makes Christianity unique. It's what makes the gospel unique. And so what does that mean? It's just a fancy way of saying the indicative is the, the reality of the way and things already are. So Christ lived, died, rose again. That's already happened. And our trust in him, we are his people. We belong to him. It's nothing you and I can do. It's nothing you, can, you and I can earn. That's the indicative. But then the imperative are the commands. So in light of all that Christ has done, in light of his resurrection from the dead, in light of our identity as God's people and this living hope, now live a particular way, the indicative, the commands. But the indicative always comes before the imperatives. Because every religion and every philosophy of life is always imperative first. 
I do certain things and then God will throw me a blessing. God will throw me a, a bone. God will, will love me or save me. Every philosophy of life, every religion is based on this premise that if I can somehow muster obedience, if I can be a good person, if I can knock on enough doors, if I can take a journey to Mecca, if I can say my prayers five times a day, then somehow God will love me. That's the antithesis of the gospel. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. We love God because he first loved us. Okay, if we don't know that verse, just leave now. God, we love God because he loved us first, right? Indicative before imperatives, right? So, so this is what, what we want to get right here. Is that as we think about preparing for what does obedience look like, don't miss this. Because now it goes into preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be given. So he goes back to the living hope, and then he says, okay, now prepare your minds for action. This, this imperative. Now, what does that, that mean, preparing your minds for action? Andy's hinted at this a couple times. It's a little bit why we're going through this book on, on habits, is it means girding up your loins of the mind. I knew you guys knew what that meant. Like, that's just a weird expression, right? I mean, girding up your loins, like, that just sounds inappropriate. We have children in here. What are you talking about, Pastor? Girding up your loins, it's not as weird as you might think. So in the first century, men wore robes. And when they would go into battle, um, they would actually begin to roll up their robes and kind of tie it into their belt so that they could actually run or they could move and, and be a little more freed up. It's, it's this idea of girding up your loins, preparing yourself for battle. So, so what Peter is saying here, he says, as, you're, as you have this living hope in Christ, as you are these exiles living in this city, it's time to pull up the robes. It's time to go to work and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a very action-oriented phrase here. This is not a passive thing. This is pulling up the robe, getting to work. Now, he says being sober-minded or self-controlled. It's, it's this idea. It's, it's the opposite of what we would call a drunk mind, <laughs> um, a, a mind that's mushy, a mind that's unclear. It's, it's, it's emotionally up and down. He's saying preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded. It has the idea of self-controlled. So uh, a, a non-sober-minded or self-controlled mind would be a mushy, unclear mind. So you're just always all over the place. Just every whim, every emotion, just up and down all the time. But he's saying, no, 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 there's a different way to think about your hope in Christ. There's a different way to live in the world, but you need a mind that is clear, that's not mushy, that's sober-minded, that's self-controlled, able to discern the will of God. Now, why this is important is because the mind is the way into the heart. And the way into the heart, biblically understanding, is, is where our actions come, where our behavior comes, where our motivations come. So when the scripture talks about the heart, it includes the mind, but it also talks about our feelings, our desires, our motivations. And so, so he's saying there's a discipline, you could say this, there's a discipline of the mind that we need to pursue. That if you want to understand who you are in Christ and you want to live an obedient life in a world that is not friendly to your faith, there's a habit that must take place to continually think about all the implications of what this means and the realities of Christ and the realities of God's kingdom. That's not just going to passively happen to us. It's why Peter later in, the, in his letter, if you go to 1 Peter 4 verse 7, says it this way, the end of all things is at hand. That's pretty sobering. <laughs> Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
so he's saying hey things are dark things you're not going to be welcome things are getting evil things aren't aren't always going to work out for you but you need to have a sober mind a self-controlled non-mushy mind to think about the realities of these things how are you going to respond in the midst of those things and, and i'll say this because i'm guilty of it is is we can be so spiritually lazy right we don't do the hard work of filling our minds and our hearts with the things of god right this, the scriptures and, and good christian literature that's why i mean it's partly why we're going through this series and, and people are walking through their habits is because if we don't build those things in our lines in our lives it's really easy just to like click on netflix say well we probably should binge some more office because that's going to help me right we just want to check out. When we see things get hard in, in marriage or things get hard in parenting or things get hard in the workplace or, or things are, you know, on the bigger things outside of us, you know, in the world, we just kind of want to retreat, right? It's easier to do that. But Peter's saying, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. We have to build into our lives sober-mindedness, self-control. He, he talks about that in, in relation to prayer there. Now, if you go a couple more verses in, in chapter 5, verse 8, Towards the end of the letter, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Even as believers in Christ, we still have an enemy that wants to devour us daily. Doesn't want us to believe what we believe. Doesn't want us to live in, in obedient ways. Wants to shipwreck everything in our lives. So we need to continually see the temptations that are around us and the, the false worldviews and the ideas and the thinking that, that can so easily creep into us. We have to gird up our loins. We have to pull up the robe and seek not mushy minds, but clear and self-controlled, sober minds. I find it interesting that one of the qualifications of an elder and a deacon is to, ha- is to be self-controlled, uh, to have uh, this kind of sober way of thinking. In 1 uh, Timothy uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 2, it says, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. I mean, w- when the scriptures talk about drunkenness, the reason why drunkenness is, is a terrible thing, it's, it's okay to have a drink once in a while, at least that's how I understand the scriptures. Um, but it's, when we drink too much, what happens? You lose control. That's what alcohol does. So when you lose control, guess what? You're not sober-minded anymore. You're not thinking clearly anymore, right? I mean, how many regrets have there been because of drunkenness, right? Like, oh, geez, I can't believe what I said. I can't believe what I did, right? I mean, how many babies have been born in the midst of drunkenness, right? But that's, what, that's, the, that's the motivation behind it. It's not because, you know, wine is, is, is terrible and it doesn't taste good. It's because God wants us to be clear-headed and sober-minded, to continually see the ways in which God is at work in the world, to continually see that, that, that there are temptations all around us. We need to be not mushy-minded, but clear-minded. So he'd want even people to lead the church that have this kind of solid, clear thinking about the realities of Christ, the realities of God, being self-controlled, not being up and down emotionally all the time. Now, what's really important when we talk about obedience and we we talk about this gospel fueled obedience is that we understand this kind of spiritual dynamic of how this how this works that the indicative always comes before the imperative because i see this all the time in the church i see it all the time in my own life is that that somehow i begin to believe this that, that it's only when i'm doing good things that somehow god loves me it's only when i'm doing good things that that somehow the scales have been balanced so now god is happy with me that's not gospel that's just religion right 
when I, when I think about this idea of being sober-minded and having our minds change and, and transformed, I think of Romans 12, because in Romans 12, if you, if you look at it real quick, the first couple of verses of Romans 12, Paul really hits that spiritual dynamic of indicative before imperative, before real, ultimate realities before commandments. Verse 12, I, uh, chapter 12 of Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, so he's pointing back to all the chapters before this, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He, Paul just did it, right? He says, in light of your justification, in light of all that Christ has accomplished for you, in his life, his death, his resurrection, now therefore live as living sacrifices. Have your mind transformed, right? It's, it's indicative before imperatives. That's how it works in the scriptures. It's everywhere, right? So we don't, we don't get obedience wrong. It's, it's as we kind of marinate and sit in this, the realities of Christ coming to us, God extending his mercy to us, God extending his love to us. And in light of that, now I go and live as a living sacrifice. Now I, I love God. I, I do good works. I, I, I give thanks to God. I worship God in all things, in every area of my life. The indicative before the imperative. And why that's important is because when you and I fall on our faces, as we do often, when we don't love God with all our hearts, when we don't love our neighbors ourselves, when we don't do the things we're supposed to do, and we, we dismiss the things that, that or we avoid, or don't avoid other things, is that there's already grace there. There's already mercy there because Christ has already given it to you as a gift. He's already, his righteousness has become our own. So, so when you come into my office and, and you're just like, man, I, I just, I screwed up. I, I did something awful. We're not going to minimize that sin, of course. But I want to see, are you running to the cross? Or are you running away from God in those moments? Because if you're running away, you don't, just don't understand the gospel yet. You just don't. Because not, it's not, oh, well, I better get my life together now. I better do good things now. I better, you know, go to AA now. I better, you know, whatever it is. And yeah, there's a place for that. But, but, but the realities are, do, you, do I see people running to their Heavenly Father saying, God, there's nothing I can do to forgive myself. There's nothing I can do to, to fix what's broken in, inside of me. But if you're running from Him, you still don't understand the gospel. You're still into religion. I just got to make God happy. I just got to get my life together. It's so one of the things I've, I've walked with some, some men and women who have, have been alcoholics and gone to AA and things. And it's amazing how a lot of times what happens, because I think AA kind of builds this into them a little bit, is they kind of move from one addiction like alcohol, and then they just kind of move into another addiction. It could be something else. It could be Pepsi. It could be just reading. It could be whatever. And then they feel like they have to make amends for everything that they've done. And I know there's a place for that. There's a place for reconciliation and a place for forgiveness. But that's not what the cross says. It's already been done for you. You can't fix it. You can't. We just sang about it, right? No amount of confession, no amount of, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll do better this time, right? Kids do that too. Like, I want them to know grace doesn't work like that. It's not just, if you do better, then I'll love you. I need to love my kids even when they're doing awful things. Because that's what my Heavenly Father does for me, doesn't He? Like, even when I'm falling on my face, Grace and mercy has come to me. I can't treat my kids as just, you know, these little, well, you better get your life together, then I'll love you. And there's a place for discipline, of course. And there's a place for calling sin, sin, and, and saying, no, that's not good behavior. 
but I want to make sure they understand that they're showered with love and grace from a heavenly, merciful Father who's come to them to do something they could never do for themselves. Because I know a lot, of, some of you in this room, you grew up in those environments, right? You didn't hear the gospel until you were 25 because the whole, your whole life you just thought, oh, it's just rules and regulations and I'm just a failure because I can't keep things together. Well, welcome to the club. That's why we need this Jesus, right? And so everything was like, I'm not measuring up. I'm not doing the right things. I you know, fell on my face again. Well, I guess you're out, right? So, so preparing for this, this gospel-fueled obedience be, takes some, some effort in the sense of putting things in our lives so that we can begin to live, we can remember the hope that we have, and, and we can throw ourselves fully on the grace and the hope that we have. Now, what are, are some of these marks of gospel-fueled obedience? Like, like what does it look like um, in, in our lives? And, and Peter gives some pretty clear ones. A couple here in verse uh, 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he has called you who is, you is holy, you also be holy in all your, your conduct. And so, so what would be some of those marks? Like, how do we know when we see it? Well, one is just nonconformity. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty straightforward. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Well, what does he mean? He, say, he means the, the way in which you used to live before you were a Christian. The sins that so easily entangled you, the ways you saw the world and, and, and understood what, what money and, and fame and success and relationships and marriage and all these things, what they look like before Christ. Don't, don't go back there. Don't, don't, don't be, be a nonconformist in many ways. Live for the kingdom of God. Be obedient to God's commands. That's really, in, in our culture, that's really the only um, nonconformity there is. Because here's the thing. If everyone lives the same way, that's not, that's not non-conformity, that's just conformity, right? So if everyone thinks the same way, lives the same way, you know, about everything, right? That, that's just, everyone's doing it, right? It's just a version of middle school peer pressure. Everybody's doing it, right? Just jump in, it's fine. You know, you'll be okay. But, but here he's saying, no, 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 live non-conformist lives because you've been radically changed by this gospel. You've been radically changed by this, this living hope. Live lives of, of holiness based around the character of God and what God is like. And, you know, in, in our culture, like, some things are neutral, obviously. I mean, the, the way we dress, I don't, I don't think, you know, there's any problems. I mean, obviously there can be, we're scantily clad, I don't know. But, but the, the reality is there's certain things in our culture that, hey, that food, clothing, okay, that's fine. But there's certain things that we should be saying no to. Certain things that we should say, no, 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 no. That doesn't conform to the kingdom of God and, and God's values. That doesn't conform to the commands. It doesn't conform to this living hope in which I, I live. Because that's the, the struggle that the early Christians had. How, how do we live lives in a culture that just doesn't see things the way we see them? The way they saw marriage and relationships. And, and you know, I mean, they had you know, versions of slavery. They had, they had you know, marriages. Women just didn't have a voice and, 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 and weren't allowed to be at the center of anything. I mean, they couldn't even be um, witnesses in a trial because they basically said, you're worthless. Children were treated as worthless in second rate. That's why Jesus is always saying, hey, bring the little children to me. Because in a first century culture, they weren't welcomed at the table on any level. And he said, no, that's not what the kingdom of God is like. Actually, the kingdom of God is actually becoming like children. So let them, them come to me. So how do we live lives that, that are so different than the way the, the broader culture kind of lives and sees things? So, so nonconformity is a, is, a, is a big one. You know, when I, I think back, um, I guess about 200 years or so, 
you know, the university system it used to be about forming people's character. And, and what does a, a flourishing good life look like? Like part of your education, if you went to college or university 200 years ago, would have been, hey, how do we become men and women who actually are men and women of character? Not just getting skills so we can get a job and live the American dream, right? I know that's a hard pill to swallow, all of us that have college debt, and it's like, okay. But, but you didn't really have a class on, well, what does a good life look like? What does a flourishing life look like? Well, apparently it just means you gotta have a good job and make a lot of money. That's the good life, right? That's the vision of the good life. But, but, but here he, he's saying, hey, there's a, there's a better way. There's a joy. There's a contentment that you can have. If you have a million dollars or no money, that's what the gospel says, so that we can be content in any circumstance. Whether we have a great job or a terrible job or, or just getting through the day. And so nonconformity is, is a big mark for what this gospel fueled obedience looks like. Also, which is kind of woven in, as I mentioned, is second is lives of holiness. Lives of holiness. He, he says, you know, don't be conformed to the foreign ways of your life, but live a, a holy life. And then he, notice what he, he, he says there in, in verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Interesting. It's this kind of all-embracing idea of holiness. Now, I know when you talk about holiness, this is where like we all check out, right? Because you just have someone in your mind that's holy, and you're just like, I'm not that person. Or you just imagine holiness looks like you know a dude in a robe, just kind of floating, you know, just like, yes, how are you, right? Always happy, never, never has a bad day, right? Never has injuries, just like, yes, let's talk about that, right? Those people that are kind of annoying. Um, you know those people. You might be one of those people. Um, you know, a holiness that's just unattainable, just pietistic, right? Just, I don't know about you, Ryan, but I get up at four every day and read my Bible for nine hours, and then I pray for nine more, and then the day's just done, and then I just move on, right? I mean, that guy or gal, um, I don't think that's what holiness means here. I think holiness is a lot more practical than we realize. Holiness is about understanding a holy God who's perfect in every way, but the, one of the ways we can understand God's holiness is God's character. What is he like? Loving, kind, gracious forgiveness, right? Holiness has a very much a practicality to it. And if we go back to the Old Testament, when we see the commands in the Old Testament, it was really just a, what is God's character life? Here's these commands based and rooted in God's character, God's will, God's desire. So, so the way the commands are laid out is it's love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Don't have any images before you. And then flowing from that is loving your neighbor. Well, why does it start there? <laughs> I think Luther very wisely said the reason why we break the commands is one is, the, and he would say the reason why we're, we're covetous, you know, we, we want everything and, and other than God is because we don't keep the first command. That if we were to love God perfectly, if, if God was our all, our good, our joy, everything in it, guess what? We would love people and we would live very differently if God was enough for us. So when we talk about lives of holiness, we're talking about emulating our God, our Heavenly Father being rooted in him, finding our joy in him, finding our life in him, and flowing from that is his character, right? Is God a generous God? Okay, one head nod. I'm just going to start kicking people out. That's what we're doing. That's, that's where we've gotten to. Like one half head nod. Yes, he's generous. So are we to be generous? Yes. If God, is God gracious? Are we to be gracious? I like this. This is good. I got power up here. I got the face mic. Just a bunch of robots. Yes, pastor, yes. It's like, it's not like a cult meeting, but anyway. But that's what we're talking about. 
And that's what Jesus emulated for us. That we are, Paul says in Romans 8, that we are to be conformed in the image of the Son. Well, then when we look at the Son and we go, well, here's what Jesus was like. He blessed his enemies. He forgave his enemies. He died for his enemies. He was generous in every way. So we're to be the same. We're to emulate our Heavenly Father and what he's like and what he's about. That's what holiness looks like. I, I love what Martin Luther said uh, 500 years ago. He says, he says, God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbors do. And that's true, right? God doesn't, we don't need to earn anything from God. He's given us everything. But guess what? Our neighbors need our good works. Our neighbors need our lives of holiness that, that, that represent and reflect the character of God, right? Because God's plan of salvation and God's plan of redemption has always been to, to use his people, a collective people, a people that loved him and follow his commands so that when people come in contact with God's people, they begin to say, oh, that's what your God is like. And that's what Peter's doing here. That as you and I live holy lives, we represent, we reflect in a very imperfect way what God is like, how we live our lives, right? If, if, if we're always holding grudges and we're not united, well, guess what? You go, well, that's what God's like, I guess. If we're always stingy and we never give our stuff, our time, our energy, our affections away, well, I guess we have a picture of God that he's stingy too. And so the problems that we see in the church often are because we're not doing our part to reflect in, again, very imperfect way, the manifold wisdom of God, as Paul would say in Ephesians 3. If God is loving, we should be loving in the same, same ways. And what's so important, I think, when you think about God's fatherly love, his heavenly love, what that looks like. I know it's always hard when we talk about that. I know some of us maybe didn't have great fathers or we didn't have fathers in our lives. So the idea that God would be a, a kind, generous father, it's just like that's just so far from my understanding. Um, but notice the way Peter kind of tries to motivate this holy living in verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. That, that he, he's trying to kind of say, but remember this, this God that we worship, this, this li- these lives of holiness we're called to live, is a, we have this heavenly father, a good father, who, who loves us like good fathers should, who gives generously of his time, his energy. He, he saves us, he redeems us, he loves us, he provides for us. You need to remember that we, we, Andy always likes to talk about using, saying, Abba, Father, Daddy, God, right? It's this idea that we can climb up into his laps and he doesn't reject us. That he's a good, heavenly father. And if we understand that, and we understand that we're also a family and we have brothers and sisters, we begin to live these lives of holiness. Just a couple more and then we'll, we'll land the plane, but... A third one is, is a reverent fear of God. And we see that in verse 17. I just mentioned that. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now notice the motivation here. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. How do we live reverent lives of fear before God? I know we don't use that language a lot, this idea of fear of God. And it's not scared. It's, not, it's respect. It's honor. It's God is holy. God is great. God is glorious. And we are not. 
that we, we should tremble at his feet. I think sometimes we're a little too flippant. <laughs> and here he's saying, hey, you're also, sin is a thing, and God still has every right to judge us on that sin, that we want to honor God and everything, right? But, but I think reverent fear denotes the motivating uh, reality of that fear. Like, why would I want to live this kind of life? Did you just say, he says, you've been bought with a, as a ransom, <laughs> That, that Jesus became what you couldn't be for yourself, that he saved you, that he re- redeemed you. And so as you look at that, as you reflect on that, as you are sober-minded and clear-headed of this living hope that you have in, in Christ, of course you're going to live a holy, reverent fear before God. Like, I couldn't do that for my... Thank you, God, right? So, so if you want to live a holy life, you want to live an obedient life, it's marked by the realities that Christ died for you. And now you have ultimate significance and purpose and, and hope and forgiveness and salvation because of what Christ has done. So we constantly live this, this reality of fear before God, honor before God, respect before a holy, loving God. I, I love uh, the way Proverbs talks about the fear of, of God in a, in a very, I think, a very practical way. Um, and all of us could use some wisdom. Amen. Um, and he says that uh, Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so there's something woven in just the, the fear of God, knowing God, understanding who he is, creator God, redeemer God, that that's where wisdom is found. <laughs> like that's how we're to practically live our lives in the world. It's found in God's character, God's ways, Right? Nobody's ever begrudged or, or said, you know what? Uh, stealing my neighbor's stuff has always gone well for me. Um, you know, just always, you know, not being faithful to my wife, that just always works out really well in the end. Right? Um, you know, just coveting, just always wanting a better job, better stuff, you know, more money. That's just always just really given me a lot of joy in my heart and stability, right? No, one, no one's ever said that, right? I mean, when you think about the commands of God, what are they for? They're for our joy, right? It's as we walk in the fear of the Lord, as we say, God, you know what's best for me. You have these commands, and at times they can feel very difficult, and I don't want to do that because my heart rebels against that, and maybe if I just had a little bit more, maybe I would be happy, but he knows ultimately it comes from a good father. It comes from a, a place of, I love you so much that if, if you live within this realm, if you live in the realities of who I am and the realities of the kingdom, there's joy to be had. There's life to be had, right? Isn't that the hardest thing to teach our kids? Because <laughs> they just go, dad, if I just jump off the second floor, like, and do a backflip, like, I just really want to do that. But son, it's going to go really bad for you. Like probably an ER visit or worse. But, but, but as you realize, there are boundaries to who we are, and there are things that we just shouldn't do and can't do that fractures our relationship between God and between each other because it's for our joy and for God's glory. It's because he loves us and he wants the best for us. It's the beginning of wisdom. It's how we live all of life rooted in God. Two more will be done. Love of other Christians is another one. Should be fairly um, obvious, but not always easy. Having purified, verse 22, your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then, I love this. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word. Isn't it interesting how Peter just keeps giving us these motivators? Hey, live in reverent fear. Why? Because Christ died for you. 
Oh, you, you're called to love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, remember about this imperishable seed that you've been given in Christ. That's why you love. Because you've given a love that you could never buy or earn. Because God loved you even when you were unlovable. So how could I not love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Because here's the thing. When we have a hard time tangibly loving, and I don't mean just like feelings and you know, this romantic idea of love. That's not love. Love is action. Love is doing. Love is meeting tangible needs in the lives of people. It's reflecting on, thinking on, how does God love me? Did he love me when, only because I did good things? Well, I haven't done that many good things. Did he, did he save me when, when I finally got my life together? Well, no. <laughs> is he constantly loving even when I fall on my face and I don't love him with all my heart and when I fall, don't love my neighbor or myself? Yes. So how do we love? We love the way God loves. We love the way he's come to us, even in our weakness, even in our own sin. Jesus said in, in John chapter uh, 13, probably a fairly uh, familiar uh, text, but John 13, uh, if I can find it, 30, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. you catch it? Indicative before imperative. We love because he already loved us same way I've loved you, the same way I've been merciful, the same way I've been patient with you, the same way I've come to you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love for one another. How is our culture, our society built on? It's polarized. Good people, bad people, political, one side, one or the other, right? Everyone, you know, I love you if you're on my camp. I love you if, right? So, so how does the church, how can the church, as Francis Schaeffer would say, you know, this apologetic of love, how do we show that in tangible ways? If, if the world could just get a glimpse of a bunch of people that have no reason to be together other than their relationship to Christ and being part of the same church family and loving each other for no other reason, like you, you could easily be my enemy and yet I love you because Christ has loved me. What a witness that could be to the world. That it's by your love the world will take notice. Not by our theological arguments, or how loud we are on Facebook or Twitter. It's by your love. And guess what? That's a lot harder way to live. Everybody's tough online, amen? <laughs> right? I'm tough. I'll, I'll fight you online. Just don't come into my house. Right? It's easy. You know what's hard? It's to tangibly love another person for simply because that's what God has called me to do. That's really hard. <laughs> that's really hard, Right? It is easier just to click and then yell on Facebook and tell you why the world is the way it is and how I'm going to fix it. So, so love is a, is a marker of someone who is, is walking in this living hope, who, who's, who's understanding what, what gospel-fueled obedience looks like. And then lastly, it's, it's um, someone who craves spiritual nourishment. Um, no, notice the way the, the last little section of First Peter ends. Um, I should say this section ends, um, if I can find my page, in uh, uh, 2023. Since you have been born again, not of parable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And the word of the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by, by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. 
a marker of someone that, that really is saying, I, you know, I want to I live this obedient life is someone who craves spiritual nourishment, someone who craves the, the idea that we would want to actually grow up in Christ. And, and the ways in which we do that, he makes very clear, is the Word of God. That's, that's one of the main ways. That Think of a, a child that doesn't, you know, is learning how to read and learning how to write and understand things, right? It's like we have this, in, I hate to use this, I'll use it, but you'll, you'll understand what I'm saying. You know, we have this, this instruction manual, this, this wisdom, and they don't just come out of the womb understanding all these things. Is that we have to, to teach and we have to nourish and we have to continually remind each other that this is what the kingdom of God is about. And this is what, what your living hope is about. And this is how grace works. And this is what happened on the cross. And this is why resurrection happened. This is what we're called to be as God's people. This is what the church is, is for. Right? It's all this instruction and teaching so that we, we kind of move from the bottle, right? I, I used this in an illustration a few weeks back when we were in Hebrews, the same idea. Is, you know, a, a teenager that's you know, uh, 13, 14 drinking a bottle, it's, that's not good. I mean, it could be funny and make for funny Instagram posts, but I, I hope our kids are developing beyond that, right? And so God's kids, it, it's cute for a while, but that's not where we want to live, right? That's not where we want to stay. It's a little bit why we've been talking about the, these habits. How do we build these habits into our lives so that we can kind of move from bottles and get on some meat, right? And, and, and grow and mature, right? And, and growth and maturity. And again, this is not about, you know, how much knowledge we have in our head or, or you know, do we have a seminary level understanding of the scriptures? That's, that's not what, what he, he says here. He, he says it's actually going to flush itself out and not... Um, putting away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. <laughs> he says that's what immature people do. Did you catch it? This is all about how you live. Malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And if you've tasted that the Lord is good, guess what? We're putting away envy and malice and deceit. And we're putting on something new. We're putting on love and grace and mercy and reconciliation. It's all in the context of a Christian community. This is where this is being addressed, right? That, that you and I need to, to be in a place where we can actually begin to live these things out. That everyone's spiritual and everyone's mature when you live in isolation. Just Can I get an amen to that? Right? I mean, everyone is, right? It's like, I would never do that. Well, it's, put yourself in... in Living with living humans where you actually have to interact with other humans, you'll see all kinds of junk coming out of your soul, right? It's like, oh my gosh, really? Did you really? I mean, city groups, right? That's a nightmare. Like, why do we even do this? Right? It's just like, did, uh, did Bob really just say that right now? I just want to strangle him right now. Is that just me? I'm one of the leaders. I'm the pastor in this church and I'm thinking that, right? It's extra grace required. I mean, most of you are okay, but I mean, some of you just don't come to our group. It's fine. Just go to Josh's group, um, right? But no, that, I'm saying that facetiously, but that's where this has worked out, right? It's like everyone's spiritual, everyone's mature until you actually get in the lives of people where you have to live this thing out. Can I forgive someone who's wronged me? Can I bless my enemies? Can I pray for those that I can't stand? It's hard to do. But that's where God is at work. And that's where God's spirit is. Right? It'd be a lot easier for me just to live in isolation and say, you know, I'm spiritual and mature. But when God puts me in those situations, Ryan, can you forgive that person right now? Who sent you that nasty email? Maybe, I don't know. But it, it, it's, it's where this, all this takes place. Now, as you and I go out into the world, 
how does this gospel-fueled obedience begin and end? Like, where does it, it how, do, how do we keep doing this? Like, I mean, this sounds nice, and there's marks, and there's, you know, all this stuff. But notice, going back to the, where I started, notice in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I left that out on purpose. This is strong language. Set your hope fully. This is, I'll say it this way. This is throwing yourself fully on the grace and mercies of Christ. This is how we do this every day, every moment of our days. Because Jesus is coming again to make all things new and he's already at work in our lives if we're his people. So every day I'm throwing myself, I'm going to fall on my face. I'm not going to, you know, there's going to be days I'm going to be full of deceit and malice and and not want to forgive and hypocrisy. But every day I'm going to throw and fling myself on the mercies of God and what he's done in Christ. And that's what we talked about last week. Go listen to the sermon or or whatever. But but this living hope, every day I'm going to bless God for this living hope and this resurrection. And it doesn't matter how I feel today. It doesn't matter how well the day went. It's what's happened in human history. I'm going to fling myself at the feet of Jesus every single day and every single moment and say, God, help my unbelief. I can't do this in my own strength. I wish, you know, some of you like, man, you're just kind of like this big guy, California, you know, guy. That's my life. There's a lot of times I'm not laid back and I'm uptight and I'm angry and I'm losing my marble or I'm self-regulating. That's right. It's a safe place. It's a safe place. Come on, we're friends. Let's just do this right here. It's counseling. Help me. Throwing myself on the grace of God. Andy's been around me. He knows. I'm moody. Good Lord. Right? Not always kind. I'm not always patient. But God, help me fling myself daily on the grace of God. And secondly, the beauty of all of this, too, is that we can do it as a family. That it's not just me individually, but it's us together. That's why we do this. That's why we have groups. That's why we have studies. That's why we're in each other's lives. That's why we invite each other to coffee. That's why when life's falling apart, it's like, hey man, can you pray for me, right? We need each other to do this and do this well. Why? It's not just for us. And I haven't been very clear on this sermon and I you know, wish I could have been more clear, but, but as we, we land the plane is our own obedience and our holiness is not just for us. It's for others. God doesn't need our good works, but our neighbors do. Because the scriptures, time and time again, even as we go through 1 Peter, we'll see it. By your good deeds, God will be glorified. It's as God works in us, we live out in the world. Why? So that others could be drawn in. That was God's vision in the Ten Commandments. That a people so rooted in the character of God, following the commands of God. Now they failed every way, of course, just like us. But he would gather people to his name so that as they live as his people, as they live as salt and light in the world, others would be drawn in. There's a mission to be had by our obedience. So others would know the same benevolent, gracious, merciful God. Amen? Amen. Every week we have a, a visual of what that is and why that matters with the the Lord's Supper, we take communion every week, and I love that, one of our practices as a church, because I know each week I need to be uh, throwing myself on the mercies of God and the grace of God. I need to come running to this table if I look at my week and think about the ways in which I've fallen short. 
Um, and if you are a believer in Christ, please come and, and do that. If your hope is fully set on this Jesus, come and, and celebrate the, the Lord's Supper with us. The way we do that, we have two lines in the front. Uh, we break off a piece of the bread, we dip it in the, in the cup, and this, this bread represents the broken body of Christ for you. He, he died in your place. The, the cup represents the blood that was shed to atone for our sins, to forgive us, because we couldn't do that for ourselves. And, and if you're like me and you, you just know, man, this week has not been great, come to the table. Come and eat. I, I would suggest you, you tell that to God, you confess that to God, whatever that thing is, or, or multiple things, but he's gracious to forgive and, he's, and he, he wants you to come to the table. This isn't about us fixing our lives up. It's, it's about throwing ourselves on the grace and mercies of God. So come and, and celebrate with us. If you have any allergies, we have some allergy, uh, gluten-free, nut-free bread in the middle there. You can take that. And if you're not a believer in Christ, we just ask you to stay, stay seated. But I will say this, is that my prayer and my hope for you is that one day you would throw yourself on the grace and hope and mercies of Christ. Because we believe that's the, the only true thing, the only reality that, that makes, lo- makes sense of our lives on any level and makes sense of the universe on any level. And if you want to talk about that, I'd love to talk to you about that. Um, or one of our elders. Um, there's some prayers in the city life. You can look at those too um, if you have questions about that. So with that, let us pray. Father, thank you for this living hope we have in Christ. And as we sit in that, as we believe that, as we walk in that, God, help us live lives of holiness because of that reality. And Lord, we can't do that in our own strength, in our own willpower. Oh God, how we need the power of your Holy Spirit, how we need your grace. And may we be people that daily throw ourselves on the grace and hope that we have in Christ. And may it reflect in living lives out in the world where others go, what in the world happened to you? That we could point them to a gracious Heavenly Father. God, we can't fully express our thankfulness to you for sending your own son to do something we couldn't do for ourselves. God, may that this week just just marinate deeply in our hearts and our souls and our minds. We love you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.